Good morning. How are those resolutions doing? <laughs> one day at a time. My name is Roland. I'm one of the leaders here at Rethink, and I just want to welcome you guys here. Uh, we're glad that you're here. If you're just passing through or you're looking for a home church, we would love to get to know more about you, hear your story. Uh, so you can meet us in the back or meet us at the Welcome Center in the, in the back after the service. We have a gift for you, and we'd love to just talk to you. If you've been going here for a while and you just need a hug, you can get that too. Mark might get better hugs than me, though, so you might want a hug from Mark, not me. Uh, but we're glad you're here. And we're also going to Culver's today in Maryville, so not Cherville, Maryville. Uh, when I first moved here, I, I said Maryville, and then the crowd like, boo, Maryville. I'm sorry, it's in Maryville. That's where we're going, after church, Culver's, Maryville, if you are hungry. Um, so we're going to transition to a little bit of our giving time. And uh, there are a couple ways to give here. Uh, if you're new, you can kind of check out. If you've been going here for a while, you want your money. Um, <laughs> you can write a check or give cash to the black box in the back. Or you can go online and you can uh, go to rethink.cc and click the Give tab and you can give that way as well. If you didn't know, our coffee area is called One Cup Cafe and we serve Hope Coffee out of One Cup Cafe. Um, and if you didn't know, around the world, vulnerable people are taken advantage of. There's a lot of injustice in this world, and a lot of people, uh, they're not fought for, right? People don't stand up, they don't do anything about it, and so people take advantage of them. And Hope Coffee is combating that injustice in the world. And we get to be a part of that when we donate to it. So there's a donation box back there, $2, will help save or change a life around the world, uh, if you guys didn't know that. And, uh, and, and we get to stand up. We get to stand up for someone who doesn't have a voice and help with uh, Hope Coffee. So they have a, vi a short video. We're going to watch that. And then... I think you should know you saved my life. I don't think you realize what you've done. For me, oh, I don't think you realize what a little love could mean. Oh, you, you stayed by my side, and you, you kept on the lights, and you knew just what to say when I was fading. Sometimes all that you need is someone who can believe in you more than you do. Starbucks, right? So it's kind of like a heart and mind change, just 
realizing that this world is bigger than us. There's things going on that we can actually be a part of and stand up for. Just $2 uh, in the donation box helps save and be a part of that around the world. Um, it's awesome. And lastly, we have a church survey. So uh, if you guys can scan that QR, QR code, QR code, scan it. I'll, I'll give you a second. Yeah, if you really want to take this survey, um, it's just a couple questions to help Mark bring uh, a word that will be more applicable to your life, help you walk with Christ, with God. Um, Mark always brings the realness, yeah. and we appreciate that. Um, he doesn't hold back, and you can see God work in his life when he preaches to us. And he's going to bring the word to us this morning. We're thankful for you, Mark, and all you do so. Lean in as we as we discuss this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning. Welcome back to church. My name is Mark, the pastor of church. And about five years ago, we started our Sunday morning services. So weekly services, whatever you want to call it. So it's been a fun little journey. Uh, and we've been going through books of the Bible. And this year, we started off by saying, hey, for a couple hundred years, there were Christians who didn't read. They didn't have a Bible put together like we have. So how did they go from about a couple hundred people to over a million people in the world, in the Roman world? Uh, and so all of a sudden we're like, hey, let's start looking through some of these practices. And we talked about this last week. Being a disciple means that we learn how to be with Jesus. We're going to be like Jesus, and we're going to learn how to be to do what Jesus did. Uh, and so we're, we're slowly going through them, uh, these processes of what does it look like to be with Jesus. And so we talked about this quote from Dallas Willard who said, hey, it's this constant redirecting and directing and redirecting your thoughts back to God. Remember, like you sit at your desk, you're in your office place, whatever you are doing, and you're trying to think of God, but then all of a sudden you get an email, you get a notification, you get somebody like, hey, what about this? Did you see the game last night? All that kind of stuff, right? So you're constantly having this, this battle of directing and redirecting, going and redirecting, and that's this process that it looks like to do this. And so uh, if you want to really kind of dive into it, we have to kind of ask ourselves, what is the point of following Jesus? Like, have you ever asked yourself, like, what does Jesus want for us? Or what does Jesus want us to follow him? Other than, like, we get a ticket out of hell, right? Uh, that's, some of us, we've approached this idea of following Jesus, like, hey, I got my ticket out of hell. Which I always raise the question then is, is why don't we just, like, as soon as we say the right words, pray the right prayer, why doesn't Jesus just take us up to heaven? Yeah. Right? He must have left us here for something, right? So there's something to it. There's, this, there's a two-fold part of salvation, where... Yes, we're made in brand new creations, we're, we're like made new, our sins are forgiven, atoned for and all that, and we've accepted his grace, but then all of a sudden, we must be here for something. And this is what church leaders are called for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, is what we call sanctification. It's just part of this process of becoming more like Jesus. And the way that I think about this is that, like, you guys know the show, like, Big, like, where Tom Hanks gets, like, from a teenage boy to, like, whatever, and he becomes an adult, <clears throat> or the, like, weird body-swapping shows. Like, imagine if Jesus had to actually live your life. As soon as you became a follower of Jesus, he stepped into your life with your family origin, with your tendencies, the sports teams that you like, you don't like, all that, right? And your voting records. And he started living your life out. How would he interact with your family members? How would he actually talk to that person at your job that you cannot stand? Right? How would he actually live this thing out? Not just... I want to be a better person, but like the whole process of becoming more like Jesus literally means you're going to ask yourself these questions beyond just the bracelets of WWJD, right? But how actually, how do we do this? This is part of that process 
that we're working through. And so part of this understanding of, like, I want to be with Jesus means that I'm going to become more like Jesus. Yeah. And as you're staying there, in there, like, you're going to be more like Jesus in that whole process. And not just sitting in this building for an hour or so, right? Because we have 167 hours outside of this building. And it's not just saying, I'm just showing up to check off and check those box off and stuff like that. It's this, this transformative power that, that Christ has for us because we're saved from that, but we're also saved into something new. Paul, later, when he writes Galatians, talks about how it's for freedom that we're saved. And so I want to explore what does it look like to be free as we talk about these practices and these habits that, that these followers of Jesus would have put into practice to learn how to be like Jesus, to be with Jesus and all that for hundreds of years before they had the Bible. And especially when you think about like um, just the fact that most of them were illiterate. So how they, like how would having the Bible been helpful for them? So that's, there's twofold. So the first one is we're saved from the consequences of our sins. We're saved into becoming more like Jesus. And the third one is this, point of following Jesus and why we don't just like escape this earth and go like we're, we're still here is to advance his kingdom to make more disciples what did he say to Peter last week we talked about this follow me I'll make the fish of men the very first thing that he talks about when he comes to his mission is making more disciples the very last thing that he tells his disciples is go make disciples we can't just say oh I want to be a better person in 2023 and just going to be a better person and sit in isolation and, and not do anything if we don't share the good news that we have, how much of a disciple are we? Does that make sense? So if we just sit by here, imagine having the cure for something and be like, mm, yeah, I don't want to tell you. Right? That's kind of what we're doing when we don't do this. Now, I'm not saying you walk around and just tell people to go, like, turn or burn and, like, be weird and like that. Like, we've all seen that stuff, right? <clears throat> what I'm saying is we have spheres of influence, and how we actually live this out matters. And as we follow Jesus, we should become more like Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, it should be different than the rest of this world. And it should look differently. People should ask questions. And as you do that, you share the hope that you have. And so when it comes to doing this and you're 167 hours outside of this, this time here together, it's going to look different to other people. And so as they, they ask questions, you give them the answers. Don't let the chaos of your Tuesday emails pile up on you and be like, I just can't tell. I can't tell people about Jesus. Right? Like, be intentional about it. Don't get overwhelmed by this. This is what we talked about last week about uh, discipline. Now, for thousand, a couple, uh, sorry, about a thousand years or so, the church taught these enemies of the soul. And we're going to walk through this. And I remind people all the time that church history did not start at 1517. Church history started in the Bible. And so, when you look at like, the Reformation and stuff like that, it's so easy to go, like, well, Reformation, Luther, 1517. No, no, no. There's about a thousand years, fifteen hundred years before that, that we have to also look into. That if you don't want to admit it, it's still part of church history, and so we have to understand that. So this is part of that process. And for about like twelve hundred years or so, the church leaders taught that there's three enemies of our soul. Number one is Satan. Number two is our flesh, and number three is this world. And here's how this plays out: that Satan will plant deceptive thoughts, which will lead to disordered desires which will lead to sinful societies. Imagine if everyone gave in to the, the, the deceitful thoughts. Usually Satan will take something with half-truths and tempt you with it. He'll twist some words. We, we, we'll, we'll unpack these in the next couple weeks. What does it look like? How does he do this? He just takes these half-truths, started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and he just twisted certain things around 
the conflict between with God in the garden and stuff like that. And he's been doing this for since then. He takes these ideas and just kind of deceives these truths and just kind of plants it in there. And then, because of that, we have disordered desires. Right? You look at the you look at the increase of porn and sex and all this in our in our culture. Is sex bad? Absolutely not. But the reaction of the church for this has usually been sex is horrible, stay away from it. And then when you have two people who grew up in culture, church culture like that, they get married, they're like, oh crap, what do we do? We're in this marriage, and how do we actually handle sex in marriage? And it's horrible. And then they come to someone like me asking for church counseling or pastor for marriage counseling, and I'm like, well, here it is. I just talk through stuff and very blunt things, and I watch people get very embarrassed, and then I just laugh, right? <laughs> this is part of it. I don't really laugh at them, I laugh with them, right? Because it's the reality of this. But what is it? It's a, disor- it's a, it's a disordered desire. Yeah. It's not a horrible desire to, to want to have sex. That's part of the way God created us. But it's usually disordered. And then, if you have a, if you have a society where people are just constantly living into this, they're taking the see the, the deceptive uh, ideas and stuff like that, and then uh, and then they're disordering the, the desires. And then all of a sudden they're doing this. You have a whole society that's full of sinful desires, right? And so if we want to do this, following Jesus is a way of resisting this, right? It's a method that that when we stand and we say, "I want to follow Jesus." All, what you're really doing is you're putting yourself into this plane, like in, uh, in, in the crosshairs of your enemy. And you're saying, okay, let's help resist this. And what does it look like to stand in resistance of this culture? Well, the good thing is that we have an example, right? Jesus is our Lord, he's our Savior, but he's also our model. <clears throat> and he's modeled us how to do this. So we're going to step momentarily back into Matthew, okay? Some of you are like, no, wait, just, like, we're going to momentarily be in Matthew just for a moment, right? We're also going to be in Mark. You see, the temptation of Jesus happens in Mark chapter 1, also happens in Matthew chapter 4. Same event, different accounts, so there's two different like ideas about this. But the, the, the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, leads or compels Jesus to go to the desert, to the wilderness. He's like driving him out in both accounts. And so Jesus leaves the baptism site, and he goes into the wilderness, and he's fasting for 40 days. And then Satan shows up to tempt him. And notice the temptation here. He says this, take these stones and turn them into bread. You must be hungry, right? And Jesus is probably like, yeah, right? Fasting for 40 hours would be making me want to eat Taco Bell again. But it would be good. But, so, so he's like, hey, you must be tempting. Now, is it wrong for Jesus to take stones and turn them into bread? Not really, right? He took nothing and created this world. So he can do this. It's all within his realm, right? But for something, he, he, he pauses and he doesn't. His response is scriptural. The second temptation, Jesus, or sorry, Satan takes Jesus up to the temple and says, drop off, like, just jump off. The angel will help you. Like, he misquotes a text. Remember, we've talked about this before. Anytime you take a text and take it out of context, you're usually going to, like, flirt around with something that's wrong. And this is exactly what Satan does. He takes the text out of context and he drops it into this conversation. And Jesus is so attuned that he's like, you just pulled out of context. Let me give you the real context here in his response. He says, you don't test the Lord your God, right? And so then Satan takes him up to the highest point in, the, in this high mountain and he shows him the kingdoms of this world. And he says, I will give you all of these if you just bow down and worship me. Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. Jesus does not argue Satan's ownership of the kingdoms of this world. But he gives him a response, right? 
So I will unpack that right now, but I just find it fascinating that Jesus isn't like, actually, I'm the one in charge of all this. Yeah. He just simply, okay, get away from Satan, right? See what happens. Satan flees. So here's the deal. When we can acknowledge that, that Satan's going to plant these deceptive thoughts into our brains, and he's just going to put them in our lives, we can, we can start resisting the ways of Satan. And if we do that, then we become more reliant on the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens with Jesus. He does this. He, he puts it right into check. And as a result, he doesn't get the disordered desires. And he doesn't have, in this case, one person living in a sinful society. Right? He's in the wilderness by himself. And then when he comes back to society, he calls people out. He calls the original disciples out. But this is something for us to, to, to take in mind. Why does he, or sorry, how does he have the ability to look at Satan and say, you know what? That's a deceptive thought there. You're, you're, you're taking half-truths. And in my opinion, I think it's because he's been fasting. So this is the practice we're going to talk about this week. For the next couple weeks, several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce a practice or a habit. I'm going to talk to you about why and how, and then how to actually, why we should practice this. And then I'm just going to invite you to celebrate this practice. It's going to be very practical in this. So think about this. Satan comes to Jesus when he thinks he's going to be weak because he's been fasting. And, and yes, he's hungry, but hunger is not weakness. Hunger is just simply hunger. What Jesus is saying is that my connection to the Father is more important than my connection to the food. And now, we have this, this reality that we have to understand we'll unpack it here in a little bit. That we are physical bodies, but we're also spiritual bodies at the same time. We'll unpack this here in a minute. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to put my physical body in the check so I can have a spiritual connection with the Father. And every once in a while, I think we should just do this. We should just put ourselves in the check and say, whatever it is. And then I'm in the way I find Then I told Heather this is one of the most challenging past messages I've preached in the last few years. Because I don't feel like I'm a master of this. Does that make sense? feel like I'm a novice. Like, if we had the belt, I'd be like a white belt at this idea of fasting. Because I get hungry, and I'm like, yep, I'm going to eat. Uh, and there's some other baggage that I have when it comes to eating disorders and stuff like that. I'll share in a little bit. But as part of this process is like, if I don't feel like I'm mastering something, and I really teach about it, but when I look at the scriptures, I see Jesus simply saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on my connection to the Holy Spirit. And, and we have this health trend of intermittent fasting. I'm sure you guys have heard this. Yeah. If you've just gotten on YouTube, you're like, oh yeah, cool, right? It's not the same thing. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not worried about his chiseled abs and his ketone levels when he's out there in the wilderness. The motivation matters. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when it comes to fasting, it's not just a physical benefit. When it comes to fasting, what we're doing is we're saying no to food. And I've actually mistaught this in the last couple of years until I dove back into this message. So if you've heard me saying that from this church stage, hey, fasting is just simply giving something up so you can connect with God, I was wrong. It's not. You're giving up food very specifically. You're not fasting from your phone. You're abstaining from your phone or video games or whatever. It's not the same as fasting. Fasting is very specifically as food in the scriptures. So you're saying no to food. You're saying sometimes no to water. We'll get into that in a little bit. But what you're saying is anytime I have a hunger pain, I'm going to pray. It's that redirecting and directing. Scott McKnight calls it this, that you're praying with your whole body. Specifically, you're praying with your stomach. That when you're hungry, you're not looking for food. Imagine trying to fast at a buffet. That would be horrible, right? 
But sometimes I know people in the food industry who fast and there's certain foods or tables. I imagine that's torturous. But every time they get that hunger, like I have friends like, yeah, I just pray to God. Every time I get hunger, I'm like, you must, that's how you pray without ceasing right there. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. You're just praying with your whole body. You're always there and you're just not ceasing. But I think when Saint showed up to, to, to Jesus, he thinks he's weak, but he's actually very strong because he has this connection with the Father. And he's like, yep, yeah, you know what? I can not only see when you misquoted something, I can actually redirect it and stuff like that. So what would it look like for us to actually live into this? And so part of what I want us to do is to work through this. And so uh, the, the what of a fast is that. You're just giving food up to connect with them. Now, why we should do this, that's going to be a little bit on, on we'll unpack that throughout the, today. Does that make sense? And so part of this process is learning how to understand what we actually do to connect with God. Now, and if you grew up in churchianity or stuff like that, you may have a list. If I gave you said, asked the question, what are the top three spiritual disciplines that pastors or church leaders have told you to do? What would they be? Any ideas? You don't have to be silent. You could actually have prayer, prayer tithing, 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 Bible, Bible, Bible fasting, fasting, attending church probably, fellowship. So we, have, we know because of extra biblical literature, like the mission and stuff like that, what the rabbis were teaching the disciples of Jesus as they were. And here's, I'm not going to give you, like, I'll give you in reverse order, sorry. Giving to the poor, fasting, and prayer. And if you read through the Gospels, you see what Jesus talks about more and more and more. Giving to the poor, fasting, and prayer. And it's very fascinating to me when I read through, and that's what I've actually taught students and suffered a decade or so, what it looks like. Now, we have different worlds and we're in different cultures and stuff like that. I get it. Um, we, most of us are literate. I'll say most of us because I don't know. But I'm going to guess there it is. Um, but when we, I, when, I'll be honest, like, I, did, I was never taught the idea of fasting until I was in college. And then I didn't do it. I just learned about it. Does that make sense? It was one of those ideas that I was like, that's cool for you guys. I'm not going to do that. I like food. And by the way, I was in college where I paid for room and room and board, and I'm going to get my money's worth. We had this thing, like, when I went out to college, we had four meals. We had this thing called the fourth meal, and we would go at like 1030 and eat pancakes and ice cream. And I was like, heck yeah, right? <laughs> Why not? But I wanted to make sure I got my money's worth, and so I did that. So, uh, and then I paid for it. So there's that. But anyway, so for your, here's what I want to do. I'm going to take you through a very quick uh, blast through Matthew chapter 6. Here's what uh, Jesus teaches about Matthew and the Sermon on uh, Fasting and the Sermon on Mount. Here's what he says. That when you fast, don't make it obvious to the hypocrites, like the hypocrites, hypocrites do, sorry. Um, <clears throat> they try to make themselves look miserable, uh, disheveled, the people, they admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that the only reward they'll ever get on this earth is the people's acknowledgement. Well, when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, put some product in your hair, put some deodorant on probably as well. And then no one will notice that you're fasting except for the Father who knows what you're doing in private. And your Father will see everything in reward. Notice this very first word. When you fast. Not if. When. It's an assumption that Jesus has of his people, of his followers. Ch uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. Jesus replied, when he gets mourned while celebrating with the groom, of course not. But uh, someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Fasting is this assumption that Jesus has. Now, the Jewish people fasted twice a week, 
And early church fasted twice a week as well. They just made sure that it wasn't on the same day as the Pharisees. Because they called them, they called them Pharisees hypocrites. So they were angry Christians all the way back at the very beginning of the church. Who complained about everything, right? But here's the deal. When it comes to fasting, it's not a question of if. It's a question of when. Jesus just assumes his followers are going to fast. And for us, in America, we don't really like to hear that. We like to hear that we just have to pray this prayer. Right? Have the right thoughts, right? Have the beliefs. And that's part of the idea. Like, here's this tension that I find in the church in 2023. That we, some of us have great theology and horrible praxis, horrible putting it in practice. Others of us have the great methods or the great praxis, but we have horrible theology. So why we do certain things are matter. Like, but here's the deal. I'm, I'm convinced that we actually have both. Yeah. Great theology and the great practical putting it in practice, whatever you want to call that, and like working this out. And not just simply saying, well, I thought the good thought. Great. That's not the same as doing the right thing. Does that make sense? So I think there's four reasons, maybe five. I'm, I'm hesitant to put the fifth one out there. Um, but here's my four major ones. Why we should fast as followers of Jesus. Number one, it's a response to our sin. We'll unpack that here in a little bit. Number two, it's a response to grief moments or tragedies in life. That when you have these moments where you're just like, what just happened? You fast during that time. Large-scale national tragedies or threats is another one. And the fourth one is a major life decision. And then this fifth one, I'm hesitant to put out there because I don't want to get, uh, have people manipulating my words. But I think you can actually change God's word, mind on something. And I'll explain that you know, here in a little bit. Uh, when people fast, somehow God, some, somehow God listens. Now, I'm not saying this is name and claim that you fast and you're giving away money. I just want to make sure I'm clear on that one. But I'll unpack this here in a little bit. Uh, what that is. But the, in order to get a, a thorough theology of fasting, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is this a creation account where God looks down in the earth and he does not put vegetation on the soil. Let me just read real quick. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything that was completed in them on the seventh day, God finished his work of creation. Um, let's jump down to verse 4. This is the account of creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord made the earth and the heavens, neither the plants nor the grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord did not yet set rain over the waters to water the earth. So there's no one there to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. And then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed breath into the man's nostrils. Then he became a living person. So, there's order that God puts in here. He says that humans, uh, man or Adam, should rule over the vegetation. And that means really to capture the potential, the full potential of the vegetation world. And then, he should rule over the animal kingdom. Meaning, not like, you know, dictator type thing, but like capturing the full potential of the animal kingdom as well. Right? So, he creates Adam out of the dust, but he's not a living person yet. That's the physical parts of what, what we are. We are physical beings, right? But he doesn't become a living person until his breath is breathed into his nostrils. And the Hebrew, that word is ruach. Ruach is the same word for spirit and breath. We now became a living person because now we have the spirit of God living in us. Adam in Hebrew is Adam, which is humanity. Eve is the word for life. Human life. 
is how we get there, right? And now, because we're human beings who have physical bodies with spiritual being, spiritual essence to us, now we are living people. I don't know about you, but I grew up in this church world where I thought that my physical body was horrible, and that this earth was horrible, and I just couldn't wait to get to heaven because it was made perfect. The escape theology. Does that make sense? Instead, God is like, no, no, no. You're not an animal, because you're not just a physical body, you have a spiritual being as well. But he doesn't expect us to act like animals, and he doesn't expect us to act like angels. He expects us to act like humans, who have fleshly desires. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, these fleshly desires need to get put in check. And in my opinion, this is one of the reasons that we fast, and when we, as we fast, we put that fleshly desire into check so that we can live into who God created us to be. There's a disorder in the temptation account in Genesis chapter 3. A serpent is what, what part of what thing is a serpent? The snake, which comes from the animal kingdom, who tempts humans based on the plant of a tree. Original sin or like has its origins in fruit. That's why she's just eating meat. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up though, and I'll be honest, I went through college, I went through college with original sin had nothing to do with food. But it's right there in the Bible. There's a disorder. God's order is humans, vegetation, animal kingdom. The disorderment was a snake from the human, from the animal kingdom, tempts humans with the plant. Avoid salads. That's what I'm saying. So but in all reality, it's this 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 twisting of the order. Does that make sense? The the disorderment is there. We just have to learn how to put things in check. And this is where fasting comes into place. So what I'm going to do is walk through the five ways, the five reasons why we should fast in a sense, and help us put it into into, um, into, into check. And what I'm going to say, though, we have to be honest. I'll be honest. I didn't, the reason I didn't fast when I heard about it is because I was just recovering from eating disorders. I was a wrestler in high school. And I would go up to 230, 245, and then I would plummet down to 175, 185. I was bulimic. I had, like, there were days where I would just eat a tablespoon of peanut butter. And my mom figured out that somebody was bulimic in her household, but because I was a guy, I could easily just blame it on my younger sister. So, yes, your pastor lied to you to her family. It was, his family was fine. So, my sister would have to eat her food or dinner together, and then she would have to sit there at the table for an hour. And I would just get up and go take care of it. Does that make sense? So when I heard about this idea of fasting, I was like, if I get into this, I could easily like just go down this. We have a horribly unhealthy relationship with food in America. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Fasting is not the idea that we worship our bodies. Fasting is the way that we connect with God. And I just want to make sure we're clear about that. So if I walk through this and you're like, nah, I don't know about that. I'm here for me. I'm not here to shame you. I'm just simply acknowledging we have a horrible relationship with Three-fourths of Americans are obese. 30% of children are obese as well, and those numbers are climbing. Military experts for the last 10 years have said if we ever had to have a mass like uh, uh, draft, we would be so far behind, just trying to get our people into shape. And that's not even saying how to handle the weather properly. That's just a way we're screwed. Does that make sense? We also have to acknowledge we have food injustices where Government sub, like we have food that gets government subsidized that is highly fat, high, high cholesterol, and addictive. 
and it's easier and cheaper to eat unhealthy foods than to eat an apple. Right? We have deserts all around us and stuff like that. So what I when we walk through this, it's not a, a, a claim on health and stuff like that. I'm simply saying we have to be aware of it and you have you have to know your story. Does that make sense? Maybe your fasting is breakfast and lunch and you eat dinner. Does that make sense? Maybe your maybe your fasting is breakfast and you have to say, okay, like how do I actually walk through this? Uh, that three-day fast idea, that seems like that would help me get into back into Worshiping our, uh, our bodies and stuff like that. And so just be aware of it. I think the, uh, the, the, the picture that I can think about the way that we humans interact with food can be seen at the, je- the uh, grocery checkout aisle, right? So think about this right here. What do you see? You have high processed foods right next to tabloid magazine covers with chiseled and airbrushed bodies. And now you can't eat candy bars and get those chiseled bodies, right? I have tried. <laughs> right? So, now, my life, my horrible temptation, I go grocery shopping, and I love Necco wafers. My family makes fun of me for it all the time. They're like, you eat chalk? And I'm like, yes, I do. Proudly. I eat, like, Necco wafers by the case, if I can. So, I totally get it. But, here's the deal. We worship the bodies all the time, right? And what we don't acknowledge and put understanding is that it literally has been through hairbrush, it's been through makeup, it's been manipulation, Photoshop, Adobe, all that fun stuff, and we're like, why can't I look like that as you're eating Necco wafers or Snickers bars, whatever you're eating, right? That's pretty much how we handle the food idea. So, so let's talk through this really quickly. What does it look like to, uh, to fast and why shouldn't we fast? Number one, grief of sin. The Day of Atonement, which is Leviticus chapter 16, um, we see this. And what they would do is the, the Hebrew people would fast for the, for the whole day. It was the only Sabbath that they would fast during the Hebrew scriptures. Sabbaths were little mini celebrations of what happened in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It was like, yes, God, we're going to talk about this, what does it mean with the Sabbath? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to the practice of Sabbath and what that means. But it was never to, to fast during that time. It was a way of celebration. But for the Day of Atonement, what they were doing is they were literally confessing their sins. The high priest would have to take two goats, the scapegoat and all that. One, they would confess the sins and the slaughter and the blood of the lamb would cover the sins. And the other one was that they would confess the sins of the community and have that goat literally go away from the camp. You never wanted that goat to come back to the camp, right? That means the sins are returning on them. That's not the imagery. They truly believed that when this, the, the priest confessed the sins, it was gone. And they would fast during that whole time. In the early church, Christians, would, when they got baptized, would fast leading up to their baptism. It was a way of grieving their sins and feeling the pain of their sins. So that when they went into the waters of baptism, they were literally putting their sins to death. As Christ was on the cross in death. And when they came out of the water, they were life in Christ. But they wanted to experience them and feel it. It wasn't a way to earn their salvation, but just a way to experience it and to grieve it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Number two, way of death or tragedy. This played out in um, first, first Samuel chapter 30, 31. King Saul and Jonathan, they lead Israel into battle at Mount Gilboa, uh, and Bethshean is the, the city next to it. And so they're defeated, they're overcome, and the Philistines take the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and put them on the city gate. And then the men of Jabesh Gilead, would, they snuck into it, they grabbed it, the bodies, they, they went through the burial process, and then they fasted for seven days. 
As soon as David heard about the, the, the deaths of King Saul and Jonathan, he fasted along with his entire camp. Next time we go through the grieving process, fasting could be a way that we actually can experience that as well. Instead, what do most of us do? Ignore that immediately. We just simply go through that process and be like, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to deal with my emotions. Right? And so this is part of that process. And we, like, I've worked at churches where anytime there was a funeral, anytime there was a tragedy, all you had to do was, hey, we're going to have a meal, try and come before you. Right? People bring over casseroles and high carbs and dairy and food and all that. You do that. So uh, the, the third one is the national scale, like a national threat or a large scale threat. Uh, what happened? You see this in the Book of Esther, where the plot of uh, people were trying to murder, literally take out all of the Jewish people. And so Esther is called for a national a national day of fasting for th- like three days, no water and no food. That's extreme fast to me. You know what I mean? I get really thirsty. I like to drink coffee. So there's that. But when we see this play, also played out in, uh, in 1940 in England with the miracle Dunkirk. In the 1940s, before uh, America was into the war, the Nazi Germany had blasted through France, and there was 335,000 British soldiers stuck on the, coast of, on the west coast of France, and they couldn't get back home, and there's two large Nazi armies who were about to overtake them. Churchill just got into office, and he called for a day of fasting and prayer. Wow. Right here's a line of people getting, waiting to get into church wow. in England. Yeah. And all they wanted to do was fast. They misunderstood you probably afraid of whatever you were at. But, you know, they decided they want to go to church, not be in church. Then there's that one. But anyway, so Churchill calls for this National Day of Prayer, and then there's major miracles that take place. There's a storm that withholds the Nazi armies from, from advancing. Churchill calls for, a, like, all of the civilians to use their merchant ships to go get the soldiers off of the west coast of France to bring them home. And while that storm was on the, in France holding back the Nazi armies, there's an eerie calm that happened over that came over the, the English Canal. So all of a sudden, now the ships could go over there and get them. Maybe as a response to fasting and praying, or maybe just happy coincidence. We don't really know, right? In Esther's case, she calls for the fasting a day, uh, three days, three days of fasting and prayer, no food and water, and she boldly goes to the king and says, "Hey, this is happening," and exposes the plot, and then he re- responds as well. Whenever we find ourselves in these national days of prayer, like, you know, Sandy Hook and stuff like that, what, what would happen if the Christians actually fasted and prayed? Yeah. Instead of going to Facebook and YouTube and, like, this is what happens, I'm an expert because I, I saw this, like, you don't know anything. Shut up. Fast and pray. Be quiet. You know what I mean? That could be the, the proper response instead of having your battle on Facebook comments yeah. and stuff like that. And the fourth one is a major decision. The boat, the Acts chapter 13 lays this out where Paul and Barnabas are they're worshiping in Antioch. They're, they're in this moment of fasting and praying and worshiping because they're just going through the motions of fasting, right? And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says, hey, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And they do. And they lay hands on them and they send them on the missionary journeys. And Paul and Barnabas go on this missionary journey, which sets the framework for church to be across the entire world. We are, we are here as a result of what happened in Acts chapter 13. We're not isolated in vacuum things. It's like we didn't just, like, just didn't happen. It spread over the course of time. There's a major decision that happened, and they fasted and they prayed, and God said, set them aside, and he sets this on motion. 
right? Maybe you have a major decision to happen, like should you go to college, should you do whatever? Instead of just hoping and trying to find out like what the internet would say, maybe you should fast and pray. Now here, I wanna make it very clear. Fasting and praying is not like this way of just earning your, your right. Fasting and praying is a vehicle that God would use to have this connection. Because I think what happens is, is we actually start tuning into what God wants. It somehow, it somehow takes away the distraction. It's that constant going back to the Lord for us. It's that constant dwelling and redwelling on what God has in store for us. And if we constantly are learning how to be with God, that's when he can start talking to us so we actually hear it. I think God is constantly talking to us when we're so distracted by things around us. Does that make sense? This last one, I'm very hesitant to say, but it's, it's scriptural there, and I've seen it happen from time and time again. And I want to be very clear about this. There's two examples we're going to talk about where God calls out judgment on a people. He's going to destroy them. They fast and they pray, and God relents. Jonah is not a nice, like we always talk about Jonah as this nice little, like sweet little Christian book Bible thing. I mean, it's, no, it's not. Here's what happens. Jonah gets worried. He's a prophet. And God says, go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish. And he doesn't go to Tarshish because he's afraid of God. He's, a, he's actually, he knows that God is gracious and he's going to relent. God, Jonah showed up to Nineveh after being swallowed by the fish. And he shows up and he gives a very short sermon. It takes him three days to walk into the city of Nineveh. That's how big Nineveh is. And he says, in 40 days, none of will be no more. God's going to kill you or destroy you, right? And he says, Yahweh, because he begins to be very specific. So all of a sudden, now the Ninevites start fasting and praying. And God relents. And the very end of Nineveh, or sorry, the very end of Jonah, Jonah's up on this, this hill walk, overwatching the city, and he's like, God, I knew you were going to relent. I knew you are slow to anger. I knew you are gracious. That's why I went to Tarshish. It's not what a prophet learning how to do the right things, because he literally got forced to do the right thing. And God shows his graciousness. 1 Kings chapter 25, uh, King Ahab, who is a horrible person, gave into every sinful desire he possibly could. Wow. And God says, hey, I'm going to kill you right now. So he fasts and he prays, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and then God shows up and says, oh, you've changed. And he relents. And he doesn't wipe out Ahab's entire family line. He passes judgment on him as, there's, as the next generation takes place. Does that make sense? So I think sometimes God could actually do this. I don't know how and when, but maybe it does change God's word. Like, I need to know this, if we don't fast and pray, then God doesn't really, things don't change. When people fast and pray, things can change. Does that make sense? Let's end with this. We're gonna go to Galatians chapter five. And this is one of those things that I just wanna unpack for us. Here's what Paul says. So uh, Christ has set us free, truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free. Don't get tied up in the slavery of the law or of the flesh. Make sure you actually stay free. And then he li lists out all these other things in uh, chapter 19. He's kind of like King Ahab giving into their sinful desires. The results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful uh, pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, I have forgot to do this before. Living apart like this will, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it says there is no law. The power of fasting and prayer is not this like magic thing that we just go through. It's not like a formula. The power here is that we have a connection with the Holy Spirit and we put our flesh in check. If we don't put our flesh in check, we can easily live out the sinful desires. But as we put our flesh in check, we easily put ourselves in the connection so that we have the fruits of the Holy Spirit that you can't just conjure up. The fruits of the Holy Spirit is because you've been with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's the product of being with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Not because you've tried harder. So this week, here's the invitation. Don't eat. However meals you want to choose, right? Choose to fast at some point. I'm going to invite you to do that. But for the purpose of connecting with the Holy Spirit. And anytime you get that hunger pain, just pray. And say this, God, I want you over the group. Let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are. And thanks for everything you've done for us. And God, as we explore the theology and the concept of fasting and the habit, God, for some of us, this hits us right in the moment. We know exactly this is what we need to do. And other of us, we're like, no way. God, would you meet us where we're at? This is the beautiful thing about this. You don't wait for us to get perfect. You come down to us. And you've modeled it for us. You've example, given us examples of this. But God, we want to be in a position where we're in connection with you. And we want to be in a position where we are constantly thinking and rethinking about you. So that we resist the three enemies of our soul. So that we're in a connection with you and we can live in <laughs> by the power that you have for us. God, as we go through these next 168 hours, 168 hours, God, would you be real in our lives? Would you help us to be like you? Like Russell prayed earlier, so that we have this connection with you. Not over you, not under you, but with you. And we stay in step with you. And help fasting be one of those vehicles that we can do that with. We love you, God. Continue to pray this. Amen. Well, if you need prayer for anything, I'd love to meet with you in the back of the green wall. If you're new with us, I'd love to connect with you. Some of you need guest services as well, and just in the hallway and stuff like that. Uh, and don't forget, we're going to call first. If you want to join us, we'll be there in a little bit. Uh, so grab food, sit down, get to know each other, you get to know somebody new. Church, I hope you know some truth that God loves you and I love you. And as we follow him, we kind of mess the house to offer for us. So let's go. Be the church. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.